Welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Jill Violette. Now, Jill is the founder of Playworks and has a new book out entitled Why Play Works Big Changes Start Small. I was very fortunate to be able to get a copy of this book ahead of this interview. And in this episode, we're going to go into more detail around the contents of the book and why play works. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it is yes, a real, real pleasure to be able to chat with you. I spent the, the last week and the weekend reading the book, and it is a great book. So thank you so much for putting the effort and the time into putting that book together. There was a moment of irony. I did find a moment of irony. I've got a five-year-old, and uh, at one point she said, Dad, you, can you come play with me? And I said, no, 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 I have to read this book. <laughs> So I felt there was an irony there. I'm reading a, and, and then as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, I think Jill's telling me I should drop this book and go play. And uh, you should know there were plenty of moments when I did not play with my children because I was writing the damn book. So I was like, this irony has come and gone. Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. So, so this is an interesting. I actually wrote this down in my notes um, because you talk about rock, paper, scissors in the book as a strategy. And then you reference, you refer to it as Rochambeau. I did have to do a little bit of research into why. Do, do you know the reason why? You know, so we've, this is a hotly contested point of, uh, of discrepancy. And, and even within Playworks, right, because we're national, on the East Coast, folks really do call it rock, paper, scissors. On the West Coast, it tends to be more Rochambeau. And then there is a very funny and somewhat um, off-color reference to um, General Rochambeau in an episode of South Park, which um, he, they have a whole analysis, which is not really fit for um, PG consumption. But nonetheless, all that said, um, I had no idea really, other than, you know, you say Rochambeau, which is easier than saying rock, paper, scissors, but not much. And then the other kind of cool thing is that um, having done, like trainings all around the world now, um, our staff have found that pretty much every uh, culture has some version of that. Like there's, you know, in Indonesia, I think it references an elephant, a man, and an ant. Like, but they're like, they're just kind of cool. Like it, it, it does seem to be a fairly universal and, and more, I think, just about the, the sounds than anything else. It's one of the great things about getting to do this kind of work is you can get into like, deep debates about the minutiae about do you allow bubbles in foursquare or like should you just do best out three out of five or just go straight on on rock paper scissors and i think ultimately the key is what helps um keep the game going and that's usually the deciding factor for us so so in terms of the structure that I think we can follow, and I hope it's okay to do so, is to follow the structure of some of your sections in your book, because I found the sections wonderful in terms of the structure, because especially that the initial piece, at the start of each section, you, you tackle a story. You, look, you focus on a story of a number of staff members, coaches at Playworks, so you listen to the stories, and from there, you're able to delve deeper into some of the reasoning behind some of it. But what, what's the story for you, Jill? What's your first memory of play, if we think of Stuart Brown's play histories? And then what was the pathway to finding this as a career? 
I'm on Stuart's board and he has been a huge mentor and I've just um, learned so much from him. And uh, so what I was, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot because I think stories in a lot of ways are sort of the narrative form of play. And, um, and my own sort of initial memories of play, I'm an only child, right? So I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, in the 70s. So I'll be, I just turned 57. And um, so I'm that generation of women who I got to play a lot of games, sort of in the wake of Title IX, I got to play often on the boys teams and stuff like that um, in the U.S. here. That that was the defining kind of sort of hallmark about girls' participation, I think, in a lot of ways. But um, what I remember most vividly was we lived on this cul-de-sac um, in, in D.C. called um, Ross Place. And there was just this group of kids that was super mixed in age. And I was probably near the middle. And I, I can remember, like, all the kids' first and last names. And, like, and there were some littler ones. and, and But there were three older kids who totally... Jeff Schwartz, Daniel Mintz, and Amy Hanks, like, right? Like I totally, I can visualize them so clearly and they were totally in charge. And we would play these like elaborate games of foxes and hounds running through people's yards and kick the can late into the evening. Really like super elaborate games of capture the flag. And then we also did like super sketchy things like climb in and open the manholes and climb around in the sewers. Like it's sort of like as a mother now, I'm like, ah, but, um, but it, it would be that sort of neighborhood play um, as a, as a pretty young kid, uh, unsupervised, mixed age, slightly sort of um, feral, <laughs> but super awesome. And, and just feels to me like, so, especially as an only child, like, the opportunity that that uh, sort of afforded me to like go to other kids' houses and to like watch dynamics among siblings and just be in these groups where you had to figure out like how does this work and how do, where do I fit in and um, it, it just was it's super formative. From your perspective, what do you think has been that change over the generations that led towards the? you know, maybe the introduction of helicopter parenting and, you know, those kind of things that maybe has reduced that opportunity for play unstructured outside. Yeah. You know, I'm hesitant to blame digital play. I think there are great digital games and online games and and video games that aren't as like creative or inspiring. Just like I also think there are games you play in person that are really awesome and creative and some that are sort of like, eh, that's not such a great experience. So and I don't think it's that as much. I, I do think we have been moving uh, sort of for the last hundred years towards a sort of greater emphasis on formal education over informal education. John Dewey wrote about it. And I, and I think we see it in the uh, sort of emphasis uh, in how how schools function and operate, I also think we've become well less segregated in some ways, segregated in different ways, um, and and more isolated in a lot of ways. And frankly, I, I think I'm not sure if it's causal or how one would describe it, but I think uh, just trust and um, and fear in American society is just it's just it's I think it's defining, and I think. Uh, that it creates this vicious cycle because I think actually play is this powerful tool for helping us learn to manage and navigate and mitigate risk and fear. You have to learn how to do those things. You have to take risks like, right. And so it's important not to, to reference too many um, 
kid movies when you're, uh, you know, working this, but there's that great moment in Finding Nemo and the father of fish says to Nemo, like, I, you know, I want to, I just don't want to, I want to make sure nothing happens to you. And like, and Nemo understandably says, dad, if you make sure that nothing happens to me, then nothing's going to happen to me. Like that's terrible. And I, um, anyway, I, I think it is like a huge tension and I, I adore my parents and they're awesome, wonderful humans. Um, but by today's standards, I was raised by wolves. Like they, like that. I was allowed to run free and take the buses. Like when I was like seven and like all these things that, and I, and I'm not sure why we've all gotten so agitated. It's not, it really, the stats are, it's safer now than it was then, you know? And it's like, it is troubling. And I, um, I think there has been a real decline in trust in one another, in our institutions. And I, and I feel like that is at the root of a lot of what's going on. And maybe one of the most important reasons to sort of make a concerted effort to, to infuse more play into daily life. What was that point for you that you said, I'm going to become a professional of play? Yeah. So I, I mean, I was a camp counselor when in high school and college. And I also led, I did ropes courses. And when I first moved to the Bay area, I was a river guide with a group called environmental traveling companions that took kids with disabilities um, and adults with disabilities rafting and, um, and then also some cross country skiing and uh, kayaking. So, so that was all part of it. So like a very, and, and I, and I, I'm a big backpacker. And so I've always learned and played myself and did lots of sports coming up. I started my first nonprofit when I was 23, which was a children's art museum. So it wasn't necessarily play per se. Uh, although I would say that there are, there's so many um, sort of parallels between the creative process of art and, and sort of the creative process of play anyway. So, and then it was running, um, it was while running MOCA, the the children's art museum that I was out in all these schools and just kept noticing the extent to which recess and just how the school culture felt just, it, it was like, I'm, I like, I'm pro chaos. Like I can, I like, I have a high tolerance for chaos, but there's good chaos and bad chaos. And, I think I was just sort of struck by, oh, we could make this chaos so much more enjoyable. <laughs> like, and so um, that was sort of the impetus. And I had no idea. I had no idea when I was making the initial plans to start Playworks, which was originally called Sports for Kids. It never occurred to me that this was going to be a career. But uh, so I sort of, I think I found something I just couldn't not do. That seemed to be the, the sort of path chosen for me. And not to get too woo-woo, but I just sort of followed with that. <laughs> In the book, there are, you detail a lot of stories. Was there a story that really resonates for you when you were asking your coaches and staff for stories? Was there one that really stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stories and, and having people tell stories, and, like, and that's been such a gift of the job. Like um, staff have come back and like, told these stories. The, I, was, uh, I did a call yesterday with the Playwork staff just to give them a preview of the book and it was super fun. And the story that gets like the most, like it's a little bit like the my, you know, I did it my way, the whatever the story. Mm-hmm. Like, no, tell that story again, tell that one again, is the, is the Lamar story, which it's sort of the story of our, 
of our expansion and we had been operating um, as play. We were still sports for kids actually. And we were just in California and I'd been invited to go to Baltimore to speak um, at the after school group that was run through the, through Johns Hopkins and decided in conjunction with that to bring some other staff with me to visit some schools because we were getting calls about potentially opening elsewhere and we're sort of like, huh, what would that be like? And it's so funny because you, you have these moments when you're like, oh, I wonder if we're about to like, you know, expand nationally. I wonder if, the, you know, like, cause so much of those kind of experiences are sort of reflected on in retrospect. But I remember distinctly on that trip being like, oh, I wonder if we're expanding nationally. But the, the, the Lamar, Lamar was a coach for us at the time. And he, he's, uh, he was, he is amazingly gifted with kids. Um, big guy, um, legally blind, um, which, and which was kind of wild. Cause he has a great outside shot when playing basketball <laughs> and, um, he and I went to this one school to go talk with them about how recess worked at their school or so we thought. And um, we were waiting for the principal in the sort of school office. And I asked if he wanted to be the one to describe how Playworks worked. And Lamar was like, no, 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 you're the founder. You do it. I'll just listen. Mr. Thomas Berger was the principal and he brought us into his office and I start to describe how sports for kids works. And Lamar is completely mum, not saying a word. And um, Mr. Thomas Berger's nodding, nodding. I'm describing how we are at recess, what we do before school and after school, our junior coach program, the, the sports leagues. Nodding, nodding, nodding. But we get to the end of my sort of spiel, and he's like, well, it sounds great, but it would never work here. And I'm like, oh, is that because, co- you know, it costs money. They have to pay for it. No, no, no. We don't have recess. And I was like, oh. And I'm, I'm a little bit feeling like a dummy. Like, I should have done my research more than that before I got there. <laughs> But um, I, so I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, I can see that that would be sort of a game, you know, changer. <laughs> Lamar, meanwhile, who's been mute up until this point, kind of leans in and he's a big guy and we're, and we're sitting in very small chairs. And he's like, but wait a minute, when like the kids are finished up with lunch and they go outside, what, you have recess then. And Mr. Thomas Berger's like, no, no, you know, we don't, we don't let them, we don't let them out. We don't have recess. And Lamar like, and he could just, he's just really struggling. He's like, well, but what about with the kindergartners? Like the little kids, like when they take a break and they go outside to play, like that, that counts as recess. He's like, no, the, the kids don't go outside. They don't, we don't have recess. Lamar just digs in and ultimately was like, no, uh, can I, can I leave your kids at recess today? And, and Mr. Thomas Berger was like, who is this lunatic you brought with you? Anyway, back and forth, back and forth. And Lamar convinces him to let them let us take them out for 10 minutes. So we hang about. We actually went out to the schoolyard. We cleaned up a little bit. And so when it comes to be lunchtime, about 15 minutes in, Mr. Thomas Berger brings us over to the cafeteria. And it's, you know, it's a it's sort of what you imagine as a school cafeteria. And there are two doors, and there's a lunch lady in a starched white lunch lady uniform standing at either door with arms crossed, looking quite stern. And Lamar strides to the middle of the cafeteria and then claps really quickly. And a couple of kids look at him, but nothing much happens. And then he repeats, claps again. A couple of kids sort of follow him, and then he does it a third time. Literally every kid in the cafeteria, almost against their will, repeat the, cl- the clap and fall silent. And the lunch ladies are looking completely freaked out. And Mr. Thomas Berger's like, huh, this is sort of interesting. Lamar explains that, you know, Mr. Thomas Berger said we could take him out for recess. You know, what they have to do, they have to finish up, clean up, line up. He 
take, we end up taking the kids all out. They're super cooperative and super good because they're thrilled. They ha- I mean, for most of the kids at that school, they've never had recess. They know what it is as a sort of social thing, but not, they've never had it. So he circles all the kids up and we break into groups and 10 minutes of games and activities. I ran a game and he ran a game and the kids were on, some kids were on the slides and brings them back together. They circle back up and he went around the circle and the kids were just like, that was so great. You know, we just all sort of, uh, you know, weighing in. And then he says, well, you just have to show your teachers and the principal that you can really handle this. And you have to, the same way you came out, I need you to go back in and just the kids, they absolutely got it. They absolutely wanted, they were intrinsically motivated to do it. And so Mr. Thomas Berger was like, all right, I'm sold. You know, I had thought my kids didn't know how to play and they clearly do. And the, the lunch ladies also, my favorite part was they came running across the playground. We're like holding on to Lamar, like, don't leave or you'll be back tomorrow, right? <laughs> but it was that story, I think, both about like how the kids were like primed to do it, even though the grownups didn't really have faith that it was possible. And also about Lamar and his sort of, unreasonable self in the best possible way just like digging in and being like no let's this is really important let's do this we can do this and let's do it right this minute like right like don't let's not like plan to do it at some future state like now and that for me has felt very much at the essence of of who we are you know i think one of the one of the the best parts about um about the work over the last 25 years like i got into it because i was like you know, I had so much empathy for the kids and knew that I personally needed to play every day and like how, but I think what kept me in it for as long as I've been um, was the sort of transformative experience that our coaches and that, and people more generally who get into being the adults who are um, facilitating play for kids or facilitating play for other grownups, that, that just that, that opportunity to make a difference is that, that is, just a sort of a life-sustaining force that everybody should have access to. What for you has been like the, the thing that you've used, the selling point to justify play that has been more recent that you're like, see, this is, this is proof. The long-standing one is definitely, I love Stuart Brown's point about calling out that play has survived evolution despite being a risky behavior because of its sort of myriad impacts, right? Like, I just think, oh, you know, when you think about that, like, wow, when we, you know, just understanding, having that sort of behavioral understanding of evolution, like those behaviors that have lasted have lasted for a reason. And and when there's a behavior that is risky and it lasts, it generally means that it's a really important behavior. And so I, I think that's, that's telling the more recent one, um, Alison Gopnik's book, um, the gardener, uh, the, the gardener and the carpenter, I just think is fascinating in her work. She's at UC Berkeley and her work around sort of early development uh, for kids and, and, and how it influences everything from AI to machine intelligence. It's like um, she, she calls on uh, sort of curiosity and calls it out as this like really salient skill tendency, like, and just really talks a lot about the role of parents in supporting curiosity and its importance. Um, you know, how do you, how do you create, create the conditions that uh, encourage kids' brains to, 
do deeply complex work and um I don't know, everything from creating causal models to like just uh, navigating the complexity of our world. And I, I that, so just to use, so I've, I've done one Finding Nemo reference, but um, I don't know if you've been watching Ted Lasso, which oh, I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with. But I don't think this will ruin it for anybody. It's a few, it's from the first season, but there's this wonderful moment in Ted Lasso and he's playing darts and he just, he does this monologue about curiosity. You know, Rupert, Guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. And it's, I just, it's so far, it's my, like, favorite part of the whole series. And, um, but I just think curiosity and it's, and it's, um, and the way that play sparks it and supports it and reinforces it uh, just feels to me like one of the most essential brain uh, connections and sort of scientific reasons why play works. Yeah. I, I wonder, I toggle back and forth between being, you know, optimistic that like, Oh yeah, people are seeing it. And then also like, Ooh, we're going back and, you know, people are just feeling huge pressure to, sort of academic remediation or like how do you get people back into the workplace and like, you know, in the whole sort of back to normal kind of like, wait, 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 normal wasn't so good before either. Like, like this is an opportunity, like we learned some stuff along the way potentially. And I, I hope we don't let those lessons go by the wayside. It's a big change globally that we're experiencing and we don't want to lose out on this opportunity. How do you think, you know, play spaces we've been talking about, physical distance and for us we spent a lot of time modifying a lot of our activity to be able to be aware of six feet of distance and then lack of touching and you know science changes and things change but where do you see the future and also virtual where do you see the future of play in terms of its location its space yeah i've been doing a lot of thinking about kind of space and play because uh there's in-person play and and how we're doing it outside and and just historically, play theorists have like talked about like just to get super extra nerdy for a second. Johann Huizinga, who wrote Homo Ludens, basically this early treatise about um, how the thing that makes us human is actually our capacity for play. But he has this awesome section uh, in the book where he talks about he compares play spaces like playgrounds or pit fields, the pitch, whatever, to to sacred spaces, and that when humans enter into a state of play and the creating of boundaries in the play areas, they are making a pact with one another to allow for a whole different set of rules than the usual rules of day-to-day life. And that in doing that, they are, that affords them opportunity for, for a different kind of connection. And, and it's also this incredible practice for taking on accountability to one another and for the, just what happens in a way that I think ultimately for me, that's, sort of how kids learn to grow up and be citizens. But I also just thinking about this moment and how we've been playing virtually and what that means. I mean, you and I talked about that a little bit about like how this, it's just been transformative being online all the time. And, and so space has gotten like, so you and I are in these little boxes on zoom together. Right. And like, we're both together in a pixelated form and not right. But that it's, that that's a sort of fascinating kind of, whole nother dimension of of space that we have entered into but ultimately i think what my hope is about how play spaces kind of the how they they 
um, manifest in the future is that play stops being seen as something that can only happen in sort of certain designated spaces and that play is infused more broadly into sort of all of our spaces that there is there is a place for play in the classroom and there's a place for play in the office and there are places you go to play but that play is as much a mindset and a part of how we connect play as a language um, and, a, and a way that we communicate. I, I'm hoping actually for a, a sort of a, a broadening of play spaces um, in, in no small part in response to all the changes we've been through. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's an educational piece when it comes to the understanding of what play actually means, because I think that a lot of people assume that play means playing a sport like soccer or basketball or something like I'm playing a sport. And don't consider other play being something that anyone can access or reading, like the act of reading a book, an involuntary act of, that brings you joy and takes you away from the sense of time and all of those kind of things can be considered play. But I think sometimes we assume it has to have a prop or a, a goofy fitness to it or a childishness to it. But I think maybe there's opportunity for education around the word. No, I think so. It's, it has a branding problem, I think, for sure. <laughs> I, I, for most people that I talk to, yeah. I think that that's yeah. our industry as a whole, maybe, has branding right. issues. Yeah. There's a great book um, by Kay Jameson. Uh, she's uh, Kay Redfield Jameson. She's a professor at Johns Hopkins. And she's a fascinating um, person in that she's bipolar herself and writes about that experience and there's a book called exuberance that she wrote and about at least in the american culture our ambivalence with that kind of uh, sort of happy silly exuberant types that we simultaneously are drawn to them and that some of our great leaders and really popular figures, starting Teddy Roosevelt, you know, those kind of, who's, you know, were kind of manic in their energy levels. And, and we also hold that as somewhat suspect, you know, that there's a little bit of like, ooh, that's not serious. That's not, you know, that's not, uh, there's something off-putting about that as well. And so we've, I think we've, maybe it just stems from the American sort of Puritan work ethic, which is seems to be the root of many of our problems. But um, we, we do have very sort of mixed feelings about, about that sort of playful energy. I think something I was surprised at, shocked at when reading the book was, I think it was a discussion around um, a UN uh, legislation or an article that the minimum allowed play that has to occur for a certain age groups and that the US never signed off on it. You, you're probably in touch with this or tapped into this. Is there plans for future legislation for play? Because I, that, surely we need that as well as education. Yeah, I mean, there is the, so it's called the right to play. And I think all but two countries have signed on to it in the UN. And I think the US is one of them. Um, and I think there, is, there has been talk. There are a couple of different groups uh, in the US uh, that are really sort of at, advocating for us to revisit. It involves it being brought to the Senate. And right now, everything's so contentious and polarized. I think that people are probably a little understandably reticent to have anything that might become politically a football. But I think uh, there, there, I think it is something that will be revisited. And there are a lot of really amazing groups working in the United States that are, that are really trying to figure out how, what would a movement that sort of valued play look like? I do talk about that in the book too, though, that even within the, the folks who are big play advocates, it can be somewhat contentious, right? Like, in, and Playworks over the years has been criticized for, 
having adults be involved in kids play or, um, and, and it's been, it's funny because politically it's been criticized both on the left and the right, like, you know, that we've been too involved and, and, um, and adulterating children's play and they should just be allowed to play freely or that, you know, we're making the kids soft by, by not letting them, you know, tough it out. And and so it's like a, it's a hard balance. And I think that, I think it's, you know, it's once again, the exterior outside view of something without someone seeing it. And you referenced in it, Peter Gray coming and observing a program and changing tune potentially in terms of the hybridity of the structure versus the free play notion and the fight between the two people being more immersed in play then have the opportunity to be able to have those discussions and those people who maybe don't see it as much can have those opinions but they're too polar black versus white doesn't make sense when it comes to the way that we interact with play and i think that people have to be taught how to play you know there is a gap when you have groups and you don't know how to do it and so adding in that facilitation i think that the word facilitation from my perspective is to make easy and that's what we're doing right like we're making it easier for people to play we're making it easier for people to have these experiences and sure, I shouldn't have to be in every moment, be in every class or of every single group to help initiate play. There was a, a corporate group that I worked with who, when I left, they said, oh, Phil, we would love to be able to do this every day. I wish you could come back each day. And I was like, well, why can't you do this? Right. You know, why can't you lead a tag right. activity or do something like this? And they were like, what? There's no way we could do that. Right. So it's right. sometimes they need us to help introduce right. it anyway. But I always do, I am quick to point out that play is the original amateur activity. Like, you know, sometimes I I have to laugh and my kids are like, really, you're a recess professional mom? Like, how is that possible? Like, but no, I do. And I, I, we say this all the time, right? That ultimately I think what makes the programming work is that the end goal is to have kids be drivers of their own play. Like that we are um, helping create the structure and then pointing it out in a way that, that ultimately the goal is for the kids to own it and drive it and to shape it and make it their own. And, and that if you can do this well, um, besides the fact that they get to play, which in and of itself is enough, but it, it, these are skills that apply to being drivers of their own education. And I think also ultimately being drivers of our own democracy, of our own society, I think, of your own communities. I think these are the skills that help us figure out how we all get along. So much information so far already that people could grab and take for themselves. I'd love to end with maybe like a tangible activity, maybe one of your favorite go-tos. And we've also, we've talked about Rochambeau and Rock, Paper, Scissors as a strategy that I know that Playworks uses. But is there another, is there an activity that you you never leave home without? I know I certainly have them. Everyone does. But what's Jill's? My ultimate closing activity, and I've done this with groups of, you know, six people and, um, you know, conferences of 5,000, but it is Rochambeau Rockstar which is a giant single elimination rock, paper, scissors tournament. Um, And um, so if you can picture it, so you have a room full of people and they pair off and they do, you know, Rochambeau and the victor waves their hands in the air to look for other victors. And the person who they have defeated becomes their cheering section. So you have an ever diminishing number of victors being supported by a loud cheering, ever growing sort of, group of vanquished humans behind them and then you because of the magic of mass it goes very quickly people are always like oh my god there are five thousand of us but like it goes you know five thousand twenty five hundred twelve fifty it's like pretty quick how you know like the number of matches and uh and ultimately it comes down to this like you know one rochambeau rock star and the whole room is cheering and and, and i think 
I, I love it one because it's like completely arbitrary, right? Like, like it's, it is fun. No, this is, I suppose there are ways you could, you know, finagle to win, but by and large, it is a, like just pure chance. And so you always have some person who's like winning almost against their will. They're like, no, I don't want to win again. You know, almost the more reticent they are, the more likely they are to be victorious. And there's this moment where one person is just getting this whole room full of people cheering for them. And uh, it's that quote. And I think it's maybe it's, it's maybe my Angela, but apparently maybe it's not my Angela, but it's people won't remember what you said or what they, what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And so I think that just feels to me like it comes up time and time again with playing together. Like you can give a whole talk, but if you actually get people to play and they have that experience of connecting with others, no, no matter how lightly, um, and then like the cheering and the being a part of this bigger thing, that, that leaves a sort of indelible impression. For listeners out there, I, I did an episode called Neurochemicals at Play. I highly recommend you check it out because this is an example. This activity is an example of where you see serotonin really come into play. Well, awesome. Uh, thanks so much, Jill. Just to, just to wrap this, how might people be able to find information about yourselves, Playworks, and then also the book? Yeah. Well, so um, on the interwebs, uh, Playworks is www.playworks.org. And um, you can, and there's a whole section about the book. The book is called Why Play Works, Big Changes Start Small. And then I also have a website, which is jillviolet.com. And that's um, Violet is spelled V-I-A-L-E-T. And the book is available on, um, on, at Amazon and on Bookshop and um, some bookshops, hopefully near you at some point in the not too distant future. For anyone in works in the in the realm of play, I highly recommend it. It's a great combination of stories, uh, theory and science, and then also tangible activities that you can take into your programming. Each of the small starts are valuable in each of the sections, and there's a whole activity section towards the end. So highly valuable book for all people in this industry. So thank you, Jill, for putting it out there. Thank you so much. Well, thank awesome. you so much, Jill. Been an absolute take pleasure. Care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting Article Pasta, guys! <laughs>